Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sport podcast with sports editor Mike Finch and sports scientist Professor Ross Tucker. So you are what you eat. This is a podcast which we have been discussing for quite some time and uh, we've been discussing how to do it and we've been discussing all sorts of things around how we can do this the best way and uh, this is why this podcast is particularly exciting for us here at the Science of Sport. Um, this is all about nutrition. It's all about sports nutrition in particular and sports diet. We will touch on some of the uh, themes around these discussions including these uh, keto and fasting diets, all those sort of things um, and we've got two bits of uh, interviews. One of our main, our main interview which we'll introduce a little bit later and another interview where we had uh, a chance to talk to the author of a very good study around uh, athletes that uh, looked at fasting versus non-fasting training diets in sub-elite athletes. So a real opportunity for anybody that is interested in the world of uh, dietetics and interested in how you feel for your sport um, and uh, some of the, the, the basics around that. And I hope that uh, you enjoy it. Ross, I mean, this is, some, as I said, it is something we've been thinking about for quite some time because it's something that's very close to our heart because there is so much noise in this area around sports nutrition and nutrition in general that kind of getting an absolute six word answer to these things is, <laughs> is not an easy thing to do is it no and this is by no means exhaustive even though you're gonna hear we go into quite a lot of detail with two experts especially our second one louise burke you, and even so it's still not going to be exhaustive there's still going to be half a dozen questions that remain unanswered and we're going to commit to answering those in the future as well but yeah like remember last year it was probably towards september october and we started to first dip a toe into the carbohydrate waters by talking about how much more elite athletes are consuming than maybe they used to and then you realize that five years ago the conversation was all how not to eat carbs and now it's about how to get more carbs and this whole world of nutrition spins around a lot you know and it's quite difficult i think sometimes to discern marketing from reality and science from science fiction opinion from fact and so if that if nothing else comes out of this then to make listeners realize that this stuff's actually quite complex mm. and it's highly individualized and there's a lot of nuance context timing circumstance specific then this would be a successful one but obviously what we really want you to do is go away and be informed enough that when you're next running or riding with your mates you can actually say hang on a moment i'm going to pull you up on what you just claimed because that's actually not what the science shows yeah and uh, i think that's the that's the thing that i got out of these particularly these two interviews today is that we're always looking and as you mentioned during some of the interviews as a journalist and as a magazine editor we're looking for that headline but in fact once you get into the weeds of what we're discussing here becoming informed about the processes of our body how our bodies work it's fairly logical, actually, when you think about what the conclusion is around what I should do. Mm. But you've got to understand 
what the processes are because there really isn't a silver bullet and but there is a way of managing what you need in terms of athletics and whether you want to lose weight and all those sort of things. I mean, yeah, it's, and I, it's, I suppose we didn't ask Louise this and so it would have been interesting to hear, but I've always thought even as a sports scientist, not necessarily a nutrition expert, and you being involved in the world of media around running and cycling is one of the great privileges that we both share is that what we do is so relevant to so many people who are passionate about it. So that's great. The downside is that it means that everyone is opinionated about it. And sometimes those opinions like lose the run of themselves. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, everyone becomes an expert. You know, no one's going to an accountant for their taxes and then professing over coffee to tell everyone how to do their finances. Yeah. No one goes to a cardiologist with a heart issue and then starts diagnosing everyone's heart problems. But for some reason, when it comes to diet, because I tried something and it worked, now I think everyone else should do the same as me. It's just a, it's one of the, yeah. I suppose a, a, it's a double-edged sword for someone like Louise Burke who works in the space all the time. But that's the, that's the thing you have to battle against. And this, this podcast is intended to equip people with an understanding of the principles that will allow them to evaluate claims more than just believing or rejecting claims. Because we don't want to, we don't want to pitch a, a tent on a land here that says, "Now we're in this camp, you're in that camp." Louise will talk about that mm. a lot in the interview. We want to try and give you the ability to be a nomadic thinker and move between camps and understand why each person is successful or not, and then be smart and informed as a consequence. Yeah. Right, so before we kick things off, uh, if you listened to our podcast last week, you would have heard us talking a little bit about our new channel on Discourse. And for those of you that have been following us for quite some time, and there are many of you, uh, many of you would have been one of our Patreon community members. And for those of you who don't know anything about that, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, look at Science of Sport podcast. And uh, just for the price of a coffee, you can basically donate a certain amount of money each month and you can be on our Patreon platform. But now... We've now expanded that into the discourse platform purely, and Ross will explain this a bit better. There were so many discussions happening on the Patreon platform that we needed to find a better way to do it for our community. So mm. um, as you will have heard in the last podcast, and if you haven't heard that already, we're kind of repeating it for you, a good opportunity to get onto Patreon, support us with a very low amount of, mon amount of money per month, and then have access to our discourse channel, which really just gives you an amazing amount of research, not just from Ross, who's there, React and um, basically interacting with the people on there, but many of the people on those channels and on Patreon are somewhat experts themselves, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, like the least of all is me throwing my <laughs> opinion in. You, you go on there, you're going to hear from right now like half a dozen people who are real, like deep thinkers and experiences of what we talk about. And for instance, the subject you're going to hear about today is the carb intake and fueling. I guarantee you that you're going to hear from half a dozen people about their experiences. And I'm going to commit that I'm going to go onto discourse and I'm going to, I'm not going to filter out what anyone says, of course not, but I'm going to try and steer it in a direct direction of scientific evidence, either supporting or questioning. No one's right, no one's wrong, everyone's nuanced, but that's where the discourse, the, the value is going to be significantly enhanced if you spend a bit of time on discourse after you listen to this podcast. And the way you spend time on discourse is you become a patron. It gives you exclusive access to that community, which has started off well. We've got a couple of interesting things, even since our last podcast, that have been shared to us. 
with us. And I thought we might just mention very quickly two of those because they were relevant. Last week, we spoke about the enhanced games. We learned about the Russian 15-year-old who's been banned for four years. What's interesting is literally within hours of finishing that recording, uh, Cass released the decision. And so the media today is covering Camilla Villelieva's claim that it was a contaminated strawberry dessert that caused her positive test. And so one of her defenses at Cass was that her grandfather was making a strawberry dessert and because he used the medication, he would have contaminated the thing that she then ate. She also claimed that he crushed pills with a knife and then dissolved them in a glass. And so she might have, this is her words, I might have drunk from the same glass or there at home, I might have eaten something from the same chopping board and so on. So that was her defense. Cass, for their part, found that on the balance of probabilities, she had not been able to establish that she committed the doping rule violation intentionally. And there were a number of difficulties with the evidence, including no evidence that her grandfather even used the medication. So this was from the sounds of it, a real Hail Mary by her. But it comes back to the point is she's 15 years old. She's been accused of doping. And like we see with every doper, they claim contamination or something. And so, she just, so she just she, scattergun so approached. Been, maybe she, it was the water. Maybe it was the strawberry cake. Maybe yeah. it was something else. <laughs> so has it since she's, she's been absolved? No. No. No, that was her claim. And oh, Cass has said, okay. said no. no. And Cass right. has said no. On the balance of probability, she's not been able to establish. Right that okay. she had uh, not committed an intentional anti-doping rule violation. Right. So they've rejected contamination. They've banned right. her for four years. I still think, and we made the point last week, that a 15-year-old who, let's face it, has not had a normal childhood. When you're a prodigy ice skater in Russia, you're not a normal 15-year-old <laughs> anyway, uh, is not going to say no to a coach or a doctor who says you need to take these vitamins or supplements or whatever they told her. Mm. If that's the case, they of course they're rejecting that. So yeah, that's the latest development on that. I thought it just a, I suppose, good and bad timing in the sense that we literally just discussed this and then this news broke. So we yeah. didn't mention it last time. I thought I'd mention it now. Mm. And then related, Renato Caroni, who's one of our prolific patron members now on Discourse, shared with us a report that WADA has published. It was actually published about a week ago from something called Operation Refuge, which analyzes doping among minors and. Minors being children, not minors. <laughs> and uh, you can actually download the reports. It's a 29-page public document, and it describes some of the challenges and issues that children have faced when failing doping tests, including, and I'll read you a list, trauma, isolation, impact, pressure, ignorance, and abandonment. <laughs> so I'll just come back again. Is you've got, you, you slap 15-year-olds or kids with these bands, and you know that they're not doing it alone, and you never get the, the enabler, the entourage, the doctor, the parent, the coach. It feels to me like recognizing the things that kids go through, you should be maybe making a harder effort to to, to catch the doper, not the, because mm. I don't yeah. want to say victim, but in some respects, a lot of the time, the, kids is, the kid is the victim. Mm. Mm. So anyway, there's a report and I'll put that link in the show notes and it'll also be on Discourse so you can see it there. Yeah, so if you're going to Discourse yeah. and you're on our Patreon support channels, um, you can see that discussion happening there, and uh, no doubt there'll be some uh, lots of reaction to that from our various members there. So there it is. Um, now let's kick off with a very interesting interview that we did with uh, a young man by the name of Gorka Prieto Berber, a Spanish uh, researcher who works for the UAE cycling team as mm. one of the researchers there. Uh, and a nutritionist. A, a nutritionist. Yeah. Oh, there he is. Um, mm. So he, he he did a study. I'll give you the official name of the report, and maybe Ross, you can uh, take a deep breath. 
yes. you can take a deep breath and, and give us the, the mm-hmm. crazy version of it. But the, the report is entitled, A Five-Week Periodized Carbohydrate Diet Does Not Improve Maximal Lactate Steady-State Exercise Capacity and Substrate Oxidation in Well-Trained Cyclists Compared to a High-Carbohydrate Diet. So, Ross, what does that mean in English? Yeah, so... What it what it means, and it's impo- it's a it's a nice way to introduce the topic, and then you'll hear Louise talk much more about the same concept. Is there was a time when elite athletes, in particular, but all, all exercises, were told ride in a fasted state because if you deny your body carbohydrates, you will switch to fat, fat burning. You'll become a more efficient fat burner, burn more fats, and that'll have a glycogen sparing effect. Your performance will improve. That's really the whole point of our discussion with both these individuals. But what's what subsequently emerged is, is, is if you do that in a blunt way, simply not eating enough carbohydrates, you end up tanking quite badly because your both your carb in, intake and your energy supply don't meet the demands that exercise imposes on you. So the subtle approach to this is what's called periodization of carbs. So in this particular study, they look at what's called periodized carb diet. So what that means is that on some days they do training sessions without carbs and on some days they do training sessions with carbs. When you do an easy ride, in this instance it's cyclists, two hours in zone one or two, they were doing it in some of their riders without carbohydrates before and during. So it's a fasted ride, no carb intake. The control group has normal or high carbohydrate intake. And then what they tried to do was over the course of five weeks, test what effect that had on what fuel they burned, uh, body composition, exercise capacity, lactate, um, what, what they call the MLS is maximum, maximum lactate steady state performance. So the question is whether elite cyclists can do certain rides in a carb depleted and carb restricted state and then get a set of metabolic and performance differences that is better than if they'd had carbohydrates all the time. Okay. Right, so let's hear from Gorka and see what the conclusions were. So Gorka, welcome to the Science of Sports. Um, very interested in this uh, latest research that you did purely because We've had a lot of discussions and there's been lots of feedback from our supporters on Patreon and some of our discussions on our forums talking about all these different diets and fasting and keto and all those sort of things that we're talking about. So this latest research that you did, um, take us through exactly what you were aiming to to look at and to and what did you end up finding? Maybe you could summarize it for us. Yeah, so uh, what, what, what we tried to do is just it will happen when oh, we, we separate two groups. In one group, they were doing like a periodized carbohydrate intake. So depending on the training that they have prescribed, if it's what if it was efforts, if it was an easy training, so they consume carbohydrates before, like in breakfast or during the training or not. Okay, or they were restricting carbohydrates from the day before, after the lunch. We were restricting carbohydrates uh, between 0.2 or 0 grams per kilo, okay, just to to try to 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 do not load the the glycogen to the day after, okay. And the other group was doing the the same training, but uh, eating carbohydrates always in the breakfast and during the training. So, what what we have tried to do is see what happened in terms of fat and carbohydrate oxidation and see what happened uh, in terms of performance. 
and also so, body composition. Great. So, so if I can understand, you've got this group of what are really, really good cyclists. I mean, we're talking elite cyclists here, and you've split mm -hmm. them into a group that's going to do some training rides, like easy morning training rides, zone one, two. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. there a group that's going to do that ride with what you know is going to be no carbohydrates or very low carb levels because you're either not giving them breakfast or you've given them less carbs the day before and you're comparing uh -huh. them to a group that's going to have normal carbs. Now, what I'm interested in is why, why in this team and this environment were you interested in that? Like what's the theory you're trying to look for at performance advantage because of fasting? So that's, that's why we were doing that study. So I have read a lot uh, uh, about faster training that you're going to burn more fat when you are doing faster training or with no carbohydrates and also that you're going to increase your uh, uh, some genes or, or enzymes that increase your mitochondrial biogenesis so that in terms of performance you're going to improve your performance uh, you're going to burn more fat as feel doing the right so that's what that was my my thoughts about that uh, that research, mm. no? So maybe doing faster training, periodization carbohydrates, uh, we can improve that area, and we can improve performance and also the 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 substrate oxidation in terms of uh, fat, okay, lipids. So yeah. what we have what we have done is just follow the feel for the war required study. Yes. Um, and what what we have done. As uh, I told you before, yes, because it's quite important to match calories between groups to yes. see if it has an effect or not. Yeah. And also, I would like to 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 tell everyone that we have done in the MLSS that is maximum likely steady state uh, performance test because we know uh, in. 100% because we have done, we have searched this, this, uh, physiological millstone with lactate, uh, to know 100% that they were doing the same test for mm. the same physiological millstone. Yeah. So that's, so, so before we get onto the results, cause there's two results, three, actually, if you include body composition that I want to hear from you about, I just want to know, like in your experience, cause obviously you work with a lot of cyclists, particularly in this team. Is fasted riding something they would normally do if there if it wasn't for a research study, or is the introduction of fasted research, uh, fasted riding something you really had to convince these guys to do because of the research study? In other words, how common is it among cyclists to try this method? Uh, like, I've been cycling like from ten years ago, and uh, always I heard from from cyclists, no that uh, they always they were doing like faster training or with no carbohydrates training just to burn more fat to to be more efficient no mm -hmm. so for that reason i tried to do that research uh, to see what happens no uh, because they usually do like faster training so uh, it's something that is quite common in cycling nowadays not not the same as <laughs> 10 years ago yeah. so in my case I don't prescribe too much or depending on the, on the rider, because if he feels comfortable, he can maybe, but from my point of view, uh, you're not going to have any beneficial effect doing like four hours faster training compared to feeding carbohydrates. Mm. Mm. So, so when you're looking at the, the final results there, I mean, just to kind of 
help me understand a little bit about it. And, and you're quite right what you say. A lot of the cyclists that I ride with, foster training is part of the regime. In fact, many of our local coaches here in South Africa, and I mean, you obviously work with Dr. Jeroen Swat. I know that for him, for him in the past, he's recommended fostered riding um, for mm -hmm. everybody, every kind of rider um, in his training plans. This research, do you think it's enough now to then take this research and say, right now, the protocol is not to do fostered riding anymore? Is there no benefit or is there more research needed to absolutely no. prove it? Yeah, we need more research for sure. So in the end, uh, in the results, what we have seen and is that it doesn't matter if you do faster training or not. Okay, the, the most important thing for me and seeing that research is that you need to control the calorie intake. Yeah. So uh, if you if you want to improve your body composition, it doesn't matter if you do faster training or if you eat carbohydrates in the morning because both groups they have. They have lost uh, a significant body weight and significant also body fat. Mm. So uh, the most important thing is the calorie intake. And in terms of you can do it faster training. If you don't uh, damage yourself doing five hours fasted and then you, you don't recover well to the next day training session would be a problem. Okay. So that's what I mean for us. Like uh, we do like recreational cycling, no, not professional cycling. I do faster training, one hour, two hours, and nothing happens, no? I don't damage myself. So it depends on the context also. Uh, but if you do five hours, five hour training, I don't recommend you to do five hours faster training if the next day you have to do uh, efforts, for example. Yeah, so just so, sorry, because I think we're getting ahead of ourselves now to the conclusion. Like, I want to step back and look at the results for the benefit of people who haven't read it. Now, you mentioned earlier your... Your two groups are compared for a couple of performances and then also body composition. Those those performances are what you spoke about as an MLSS, maximum lact lactate steady state. And then you mm -hmm. also do a time to exhaustion test. Maybe just summarize very briefly for us what those tests measure and what you found in the high carb versus the low carb or fasted group, and then also the body composition. And then and then it would be cool to talk about the implications of the research. Yeah, we have done that test because as I told you before, uh we're trying to do the same to measure the same physiological milestone that was the MLSS. And um, for that reason, we were doing with, uh, as is defined uh, by lactate, okay? Taking 30 minutes test, test, taking lactate from the minutes 10 until the minutes 30. And if that does not reach more than one millimole, that's the MLSS. So uh, knowing that we have done this test until uh, exhaustion and we were measuring uh, the respiratory exchange radio the REF mm. to see if the substrate oxidation it changed or not right so you're measuring carbs versus fat oxidation and your finding is that your fasted group and your high carb group after five weeks of doing this regime have no mm -hmm. change compared to before they did the regime so the the use of fasted rides does not cause a change in the substrates that a cyclist uses five weeks later. That's the, that would you say that's an accurate uh, summation of it? Yes. Yes. But also I would like to, to tell you that we were doing all that, uh, all that there's no uh, doing like a normal feeding plan that one cyclist, uh, would do, no, like they were, we were doing like, 
uh, reducing the, the glycogen of the of the subjects two days before doing a glycogen depletion test. Mm. After we refuel them with eight grams per kilo of carbohydrates, two grams per kilo of protein, and one gram per kilo of lipids per day. In one day, we load the glycogen stores and then we do the test. Okay, so also they were having like a breakfast in the morning with carbs, the same amount of yeah. carbs for both groups. For that reason, maybe it does not change because they eat carbs before the, right. the test. And in all of yeah. the studies, they were measuring that doing faster or eating carbohydrates, so for sure we change. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. You want to effectively get through the process of it. And it's quite, for me, as a as a outsider looking into it, the process of this is quite technical in a way. Because when we talk about, as you say, that, that, that the test itself, when you talk about the oxidation, in other words, that's the efficiency of the body. Is that what you're, is that what it is? That, in other words, the ability for the body to perform more work. Uh, no, it's where because remember the the, the work the work that the body is performing is set by the cycling demand two hundred and sixty yeah. watts, for instance. That's right. the work, right? Now there is a component of efficiency, and you can definitely change that, which we'll discover shortly when we interview our next guest. But and please feel free to to interrupt or correct me here, Gorka. Is what they're testing is where that work is coming, where the energy to do that work is coming from. Yeah, is it coming from carbohydrates? Is it coming from fats? The theory being. Mm -hmm that these fasted rides will improve the ability of the cyclist to burn fats. And then you'd see that mm -hmm. when you do the test. And I think what Gork is saying is that because the test is done always in a carbohydrate fed state, you might never see that benefit. So, so the, the, I th I, to me, the take home message is that the choice the body makes about which fuel to use is quite complex. And it's not as simple as just saying, deny carbs, you'll burn fat. It doesn't yeah. necessarily work in that sort of linear way. And then, and then based on this research, I mean, I'm asking both of you this question. At the end of the research study, the but the crowd that are doing the fasting rides in the morning are not more efficient at burning fats than those that are the control. In that specific test, in I'd say, yeah. Is that, would you is agree, Gorka? Is that right, Gorka? Yeah, that, that's right also because we were periodizing carbohydrates, sometimes doing low, sometimes medium, or sometimes mm. high. Okay, So uh, what we have done is, as I told you, told you before, doing like something that one cyclist would do when he's going to race, eating carbohydrates, the day before and eating carbohydrates in the breakfast. So doing uh, low, medium, high uh, in the study, uh, the conclusion was that it does not change the deficiency during the test that mm. was just burning more uh, carbohydrates, burning more uh, fat fuel during the, the test. I mean, what's interesting is why do people do fasting? I mean, there must have been some research into the benefits of fasting rides because everybody was doing it for a while. I mean, where, where did that come from? Do you either of you know where that, where, that, where that came from in terms of an idea? There must have been some research study that suggested it worked. Yeah, so you, you can do it faster training. You're going to burn, for sure, a bit more fat compared to uh, feeding carbohydrates. But in the end, that from my point of view, does not mean that you're going to be more efficient. Just in that particular time that you are measuring if you burn more fat or if you burn more carbohydrates. But doing a long-term period, like cyclists do, uh, maybe it has not a beneficial effect. We don't know 100%. We need, we need to make more research because in the end, we were we had like uh, 17 
cyclist, so it's not quite high uh, end, no. Mm. But uh, they were under 23, a really good level. For that reason, it was really hard to recruit more, more participants, no. Mm. But uh, from my point of view, in five weeks, uh, what we have seen is that it has not any effect when you fit carbohydrates in the end, okay? But maybe because we were not measuring, when you do faster training, you are going to burn a bit more fat as fuel because some researchers, they were telling us that. But I don't know if it's significant or not compared to feeding carbohydrates when you control calorie intake. Yeah, that's the key, right? Like, say, in your study, the calorie intake was controlled. So those athletes who fasted in the morning and off on their two-hour zone two ride came back and they had a recovery meal, a lunch, a snack, and a dinner, all of which then made up for the fact that there'd been no carb early. So the calories at the end of the day are matched. And I think that's Same. really important. And that's where that's where I think the mistake a lot of people will say is they ride faster, but then they don't, they don't make that adjustment on the back end of the ride. And they end up in a chronic state of under-fueling with both carbs and calories and that's when you just tail off, I think. That's certainly my experience. Goke, just tell me why, just to explain to our listeners, why it was all the training was zone one, zone two. Why is that important? No, we were doing that is because we were prescribing uh, for under, under 23 level cyclists, like a normal precision, no? For the reason they were doing a lot of zone one, zone two, and also efforts, okay? Uh, just to also prescribe the low training sessions without, uh, without sense, no, with, with sense, uh, because you are not going to do train low session with efforts. So, because the meaning was just to periodize depending on the training and the efforts of that ride. Mm. That's, that's why. Can, can I ask then a question is, well, actually two, and then I'll, then I'll be done is first of all, do you think that if you had three months instead of five weeks, do you think that you could use more regular fasting rides and find an effect that was longer lasting without the compromised training quality? And secondly, actually, let me let me leave it there and just let you ask that one, and then I'll just ask a sort of short last one at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on the on the on the subject, okay? Because in my experience, I was doing in the past faster training sessions, okay. And they were telling me that they were feeling they were feeling great because it was quite easy training session. Okay, so for that reason, I don't think that this is going to be helpful for for yourself. Uh, but if you do like efforts fasted, uh, could be a problem because if the next day you have a hard training session, ninety percent you're going to struggle to to finish that session. Mm, so. Yeah. From my point, of view, it depends. Uh, if you do easy training, you can you can do it because maybe you feel well. You're going to burn a bit more fat during that particular ride uh, compared to feeling carbohydrates in the morning or feeling during the ride. But uh, it depends on the subject. Yeah. And and just and just to touch on the the, the body composition. So again, with the results that this fasting run didn't necessarily make any difference in terms of body composition at the end of the study? No, they, they had no body composition difference between groups because in the end, the most important thing was controlling the calorie intake because they were, it was mandatory to weigh the food daily 
uh, all meals for that reason also we have really low n 17 participants because it was mandatory to wait every single meal from five weeks and that was quite hard just to mm. to to make it but it has you, not different between groups uh, in the end the most important thing from my point of view is calorie intake yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Russ? No, that's actually a good way to end, I think. I yeah. think uh, yeah. when we speak to Louise Burke next, uh, the, I think some of these same questions will come up again, and you'll see, I think, a very similar themed response as you've just heard from Gorka. So uh, did, Gorka, to... just a final question from me. Were, were you surprised by the results? Did you expect a different outcome? Yeah, I, I expected yes, that the group that they that we were pre-relation carbohydrates with them, they burn more fat. As feel during the the test that that was my hypothesis, no. Uh, but in the end, what we have seen is that it has not changed. That nothing happens in the end. So, but as I told you before, we need more research, mm. more uh, more weeks doing doing this particular uh, feeding plan or. No, uh, periodizing carbohydrates compared to high carb, controlling all the the calorie intake, but it's quite hard just to tell one guy, okay, you need to wait all the food for yeah. five weeks. Uh, also, you need to take all the gels into account. Everything found it, so that's the most uh, difficult things about research, you know? Yeah, this research especially. I do have one question that was triggered by Mike's and your answer is, do you think that because you're participants in this study were such well-trained elite cyclists who would regularly be doing 15, 20 hours a week. They are so metabolically efficient. They're so good at burning fat, especially because of the nature of their training, that the margin by which diet could improve that is probably smaller than it would be for people like Mike and I, who <laughs> when we have a good week, we do 10 hours of training and it's not the right quality. It's not the right volume. And so, do you, do you think do you think a recreational cyclist, a sub elite cyclist, would see bigger changes than an elite cyclist in response to the the fasting rides that you did? Yeah, I think that's the key also because they were training before uh, between fifteen to twenty hours per week, yeah. so they are well trained cyclists, and for that reason, they are more efficient, you no? Know, because they train uh, better mm. compared to one guy that was not training before. So that could be the key, just to to. To see in that particular research that they were not having any beneficial mm -hmm. effect, no, because they they are they're training cyclists. So, because the most important thing to be efficient is training properly. Yes, uh, that's what we have seen also with yeah. professional yeah. cyclists. Just to train properly, uh, and you can see when you do a lactate test, no, you can see the good cyclists they have uh, lowest uh, lactate, no, mm -hmm. compared to uh, like guy like me that. I do cycling, yes, because I like cycling. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's the key also. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Koka, thanks very much yeah. for your time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you very much to you both. Thank you very much. So Goko talking about to us all the way from Pamplona. And uh, as you can hear, it, it was a very detailed study, although a small, a small sample, and by his own admittance, there's obviously more research done into it. But it sounds like from a layman perspective that there is evidence to suggest that riding faster 
makes no difference really whether whether in terms of your ability for your body to be a better performer or your ability for your body to lose weight mm. it doesn't really make much difference whether you are riding fasted or not fasted yeah with with the important as always fine print scientific fine print which i'll add is in a highly trained elite population who do this for five weeks on some days yeah <laughs> so so, so that's different pro- from for us right it could well be different for someone who is let's say at the extremes overweight to begin with who then cuts carbs and does fasted rides you might see a larger effect someone who's less well trained to begin with and who therefore doesn't have the metabolic machinery in place to burn fats and who then but then you then the question is is the training effect or is it the nutrition effect so those those things all matter and that's why when you heard Gorka there he's quite circumspect about it and he understands that it doesn't necessarily apply beyond and he was surprised himself to not find an effect and i think you probably might find an effect in other in other caliber Habitual diet differences would make a difference to it. And so, yeah, circumstance is always, context is always important. The, the one thing I would emphasize, and he did it, but it's worth bearing in mind, is they worked really hard in this study to make sure that the daily energy intake in the two groups was the same. Yeah, they so measured for, and weighed so, their food every day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, for example, on day two of week one, they've got one of these split sessions where the, the two groups, the carb-restricted and the carb-intake groups, have the same training sessions. But one of them is going to do that ride in a fasted state, which means at breakfast, zero carbs. The high carb group, two grams per kilogram body weight of carbs at breakfast. And then on the bike, the high carb group's taking 90 grams of carbs, the, the, the low carb group, none. So it's <laughs> protein only, no carbs. But then what you see is in the recovery meal, the low carb group gets 1.2 and the high carb group gets one. At lunch, it's 1.3 in the low carb group and one in the high carb group. At snack time, it's 1.1 compared to 0.6. And at dinner time, it's 2 compared to 1.4. So pretty much everything after training flips. Mm. And the low-carb group, the carb-restricted group, now has to make up for the fact that they didn't have it earlier. So that by the end of the day, your daily intake of, of calories is more or less matched. And that is the point he was making. It was really important. And I think the mistake that a lot of people would make is they do a fasted ride and not make that adjustment. And they do a fasted ride three, four times a week. And if you do that and never make the adjustment, then you're both going to be carb deplete and energy deplete for a really long time. And that's where the problems begin, as we discover with Louise. Does that well, make sense? The, it, it does. And yeah. I think, and, and maybe you will agree with me on this. For me, what I take out of that bit of information is that it's the timing of the carbs, which people believed was the reason why you'd see this performance benefit. In other words, if you, if you, did, if you cycled faster in the morning, you would therefore have all these advantages no matter what you did later on in the day and because he was taking that factor out in other words it's not just about um uh, calorie deficits because if they were eating differently then he would say well the calorie deficit as a result the mm. fact that it's it's mm. just timing of those cons that makes the difference yeah. and i think it's critical to make to understanding that yeah. um and understanding that the principle is that in those type of athletes right there isn't a benefit and that timing is so precise it's not every day you know, in the first week, for instance, was day two, day four, and day uh, day six, seven, mm. sorry. And then in week two, it was twice a week. So it's not five days a week that you can do this. It's It's got to be – remember, they're working with elite cyclists who are concerned about performance. And they were working with them at a time of year that they were actually preparing for quite big, important races. Mm. So you can't mess about here. You can't 
do something and say, you know what, this might really affect you by 10, 15%, but don't worry, like it's not, it's, it's consequential. Mm. And so, yeah, they go to these great lengths. It's really difficult to do this kind of research study and they've pulled it off. He talks about only 17. I, to do 17 like in this kind of control is actually quite impressive. But, but I think the point is that, again, to, to, to sort of anticipate Louise's interview, it's not so simple as just cut this and see what happens. It's cut this, but make sure you make all the adjustments so that you don't create a whole bunch of confounders that could be detrimental and then see what happened. Mm. And the end result is not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we did ask them this question. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, it's, it is a small batch of riders and obviously you, there's lots of different bands of riders you want to test in that. I mean, can we say that there's a lot more research needed into that space? Because the question I asked him, why were athletes and cyclists doing that before? I'm not quite sure you answered it the way I wanted him to. But so if everybody was thinking there was an advantage around this, then how much research does it have to take for people to say, actually, no, that is not the way to go? Yeah, so it's a quick history lesson by way of introducing Louise and answering that question is in the 70s, 80s, exercise physiologists figured out that you could actually measure what's happening in the muscle by doing biopsies. And sure enough, they discovered that when we fatigue and when we're exhausted, we, we basically depleted our carbohydrates because we knew that the body was primarily burning carbs when we did exercise, particularly high intensity. So carb depletion equals bad, right? Here be dragons. And then in 1983, research by a guy called Finney showed that if you put humans on a diet that was high in fat, low in carbs for as little as a couple of weeks, you could really shift what fuels they used. Now all of a sudden you were going to use much more fat and you'd use much less carbohydrates when you exercised. Now that's appealing and attractive because if I can use more fat, less carbs, I delay how long it takes me to get to that point where there be dragons, the carb depletion. So the whole premise was that we could have a glycogen sparing effect by shifting towards fat metabolism. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's where the fasted idea came from. And then in the 1990s and the 2000s, and I remember this was sort of at the time I did my honors and PhD study. So we learned a lot about them because this was the big focus was what are the things that humans could do to delay carb depletion? glycogen sparing and a big focus was on fat adaptation feed people with more fat they'll burn more fat give them less carbohydrate they'll burn more fat because it's available right so that was where a big focus of that came from but then people started realizing that actually man woman cannot exercise well on fat alone <laughs> mm. and so they started saying well actually we need the carbohydrates so maybe we can get smarter about this and do fasted rides to get all the upside of fat burning without the downside of overtraining, fatigue, mood state disturbances that come from chronic underfueling with carbohydrates. And so the, the approach of using fasting as a training intervention in conjunction with training rather was appealing for that reason. Does that answer your question that you yeah. asked him about? Yeah. And yeah. then I suppose there's a practical reason for it as well, right? And I mean, look at our situation. A couple of times a week, we're on the bike at 5.30 in the morning. I'm not waking up at four to have a snack or, or a meal before I ride. I'm pretty much stumbling out of bed, scoop, <laughs> scooping some Cocoa Pops in my mouth and off I go. But before the Cocoa Pops, and a joke because that was my resolution, <laughs> was, and I used it sort of tongue in cheek, I'd often get on the bike and do nothing at all. I just dried. Yeah, which is what I do. Yeah. And I noticed that after a couple of weeks of doing four or five times a week in the morning and not fueling, I was, A, starving by 10 o'clock. 
couldn't eat enough between 10 o'clock and dinner time <laughs> and B, just really tired. Mm. So that, okay, and that's how this conversation started last year is maybe we've got to think about fueling on the bike and off the bike before the ride in order to try and combat the consequences of being underfueled. But now I'm losing out on the ability to maximize fat, so I'm f- going to fast. So there's a practical mm. and a theoretical reason for why people would explore a question like Gorka did in that study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we've got quite fascinating stuff that, and I think we'll hopefully see a bit more research into that area. Anyway, let's get on to our main guest today, and uh, her name is Louise Mary Burke. She is an Australian sports dietitian, academic, and author. She was the head of the sports nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sports throughout the time that that existed from 1990 to 2018. And in 2018, she was appointed the chief of the AAS Nutrition Strategy. Since 2014, she holds the chair in sports nutrition in the Mary McClip Institute for Health research and she is a person I mean I know Ross you've known her for many years somebody who is really at the sharp end Mm. of sports nutrition yeah I said a few minutes ago that in the 90s and 2000s when I was studying there were all those studies on fat adaptation and athletic performance and so on Burke was the name doing and driving a lot of that research so she became the world authority in that field her and John Hawley and they've got a personal connection here with Cape Town because they visited here and spent quite a lot of time in collaboration with people like Tim. I'd say now it's fair to say that they're not so much in collaboration as they are in conflict (laughs) because Louise then I think and you'll hear it in her own words identified the shift in thinking where it was it was it had gone towards ketogenic diets which are very low in carbohydrates they put us in what's called a ketogenic state and there'd been claims made that that was better for endurance performance and she set about evaluating those claims and that eventually puts her at loggerheads with with Tim as we'll discover but I think is now having been the world authority on fat adaptation has narrowed that even further and become the world authority on ketogenic diets and performance in elite athletes be the first maybe to say that hasn't studied it as much in the general you know the amateurs like us but when it comes to elite athletes has done the studies and and she gives a great account i think of how this what would we call it pendulum swing has affected thinking and what we probably need to try and bring it back towards yeah and i think what i particularly enjoyed about this interview is that she's not sensationalist She's not looking for headlines. She's got a very measured approach to all of this. And I learned a lot from this process because to some extent, there's so much of this stuff around that I often get myself convinced by a particular strategy. Mm. By the end of this interview, I kind of know that what what actually you should be, th- what, how you should be thinking about nutrition because it's a very measured, mature approach to the subject. Yes, and that's the reason she's not going to sell like thousands of copies of a book, right? Hundreds of thousands of copies of a book because nuance and complexity don't sell nearly as well as let me lead you to the promised land of nutrition, which is what a lot of the other, and I'll call them pseudo-experts, do. And so she adopts a position that is sensible and scientific and valid at the detriment of being populist and popular. And that's, but that's the point. I mean, this podcast is trying to adopt the same position, but give you practical things to take out of it as well. So we'll learn about the principles and about the constraints, the limitations, the trade-offs. And hopefully, as I say, it equips you with at least enough to understand that when you hear a mate making promises, you can say, actually, no, that's probably not valid. And, and then you can start to steer people in a direction that allows them to understand individualized nutrition. That's the... 
your, your first question to her is what's the landscape now and that was her answer and that's where we want you to come out of this with as well understanding that yeah here she is then uh, one of our leading global authorities in sports nutrition louise burke ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So Louise, welcome. Um, we're very excited to talk to you today because I think there has been so much conversation around diets and fad diets and extra diets and all the kind of things that uh, are involved in the in the world of nutrition and diets at the moment. And I, I think to have you as an authority, particularly in the sports side, is going to be something that I think we're going to get a lot out of, out of today. Hmm. And maybe, maybe we can just kick things off by asking you, what does the landscape look like? I know you've worked for many, many years in the sports in the sports area specifically around diet, what are the current themes, if you could summarize, around the diets in sports at the moment? Well, I think if you look at the science side of things, thankfully people are getting more appreciative of the complexity and the nuance of sports performance. And they're not looking for binary answers that this is always right and that's always wrong. And the sports scientists that I know that work in applied settings are incredible at, you know, thinking through these really complex scenarios and they almost have to create bespoke um, ways of treating different sporting events. Even with the, the same event with the different set of athletes, there may be different requirements, but, you know, you can do the marathon, the same event, but, you know, whether it's at midnight in Doha or it's in a cold or a hot environment, it calls for, for different nutrition strategies and, and that's what I think the science is moving towards. Unfortunately, we're living in a world which is becoming more and more just um, polarised and in just about in every area that you can think of, science, politics, everything, it's black or white and you've got to pick the team or the army or the cult you want to belong to. And it's such a disappointment that as science is starting to tackle stuff and say, well, you know, there's no one correct answer, we can have many correct answers, then in its context-specific, the, um, the world's forcing you to say no. You've got to say yes or no or black or white. So it you know, depends where you want to live, whether you want to live with the um, polarisation or you want to embrace the complexity. Yeah, I think, I think to some extent, you know, from a layman's perspective, people are searching for the answers to whatever they should be doing. So I appreciate what you're saying, being open to, different scenarios and different solutions for different people is is an aspect of that. But for me as a recreational sportsman, a recreational cyclist in particular, you know, I'm searching for the answers to many of the diet dietetic questions that we will hopefully cover today. And I think for me, it feels like there's so much noise in that area that you don't know what to believe. I mean, do, would you concur with that? Or do you think that that's maybe well, a... Yeah, there, there, is, there is noise, but I think, you know, part of... Um, diving yourself into an area and wanting to become an expert, it doesn't matter whether you're a recreational um, athlete or whether you're a, an Olympic medalist, 
the the thing is you've got to know yourself and know what you're doing and um you know being able to understand complexity is part of it and it's funny how we're um happy to appreciate that in some aspects of our lives we've got every technological whiz you know thing that opens and shuts everything and we're happy to want to be able to to accept technology and complexity with the television and with you know mm. the phone and so many other aspects of our life and yet when it comes to something like performance and diet oh no it's got to be simple otherwise um there's something wrong so you know, I'd, I'd love people to be a bit more open-minded and a bit more able to trust themselves that they can handle some complexity. And, you know, when they do work this, their way through that context and nuance, then they'll be much better off. Mm, I, I mean, I, I think it's an area that's fraught with the, the potholes or minefields, my, landmines, trying to speculate as to how misinformation happens, right? But I, I do... I do think a lot of times, like you, you're in the media world now, right? And this Mike as a as a magazine editor, and you want on the cover of your magazine, you want to give a, advice in six words. Yeah, eat more X. Yes, <laughs> and because I think you're responding to a market that also wants that. You want you've got readers who are looking at the magazine, whether they're cyclists or runners, saying, "Tell me what to eat." Okay, cool. Here's six words: eat this when you ride. You know. And then I think what happens is, and this is where it gets off the rails, is that experts come in, potentially well-intentioned, but not always, and they say, I'll tell you exactly what you need to do, and it's my simple formula that will meet all your needs and make you a faster cyclist runner, whatever it is. And they then steer the conversation. And then you are vulnerable to rhetoric. You're vulnerable to who makes the most persuasive argument, not necessarily the best one. You are vulnerable to that phenomenon where the pendulum will swing like fashion from one extreme to mm. the next. And so that's why we went from a period, and I'd be fascinated to know your own journey through the last de two decades, Louise, of how you've, how your, your, let's call it your relationship with carbs in the athletes you work with, is we went from a period where it was obvious. Then we went through what I think was driven in part by this rhetoric about, no, these carbs that you've been relying on, no, they're awful. You need to avoid them. And now we've actually seen in elite sports the with the pendulum swung so far back in the other direction that we're, we're recommending twice as many as we used to. You know, it's really fascinating to see that. And, and, and with that said, be interested to know your own recollections of the journey that you've had as in nutrition around how the carbohydrate position in that fueling landscape changed in the last two decades. Oh, look, and absolutely. And I think back to my very early days of, of sports nutrition, and it coincided with the general health message around carbohydrate eating. I mean, when I started in my dietetic journey, um, we just swung around from, you know, carbs not being so healthy. And then it was sort of the move, movement to the carb-rich eating. But, you know, when those first health guidelines were proposed, no one was talking about eating bucket-o low-fat ice cream and giant bags of lollies and muffins the size of your head you know the the messages were really targeting whole grain cereals and fruits and vegetables etc um and so yes the the public and the food industry went down the the wrong hole and <clears throat> and created some problems there so that was at sort of the bigger context but in sports nutrition also we had a one size fits all that every athlete every time should be consuming high carbohydrate diets. And it was always absolute amounts, not thinking about but what did that athlete do today and what 
you know, the difference between different athletes and the same athlete on different days or different phases of their training. And so I look back at some of the early things that I wrote and I'm, you know, I'm ashamed, but I can understand why we were doing it. Um, and, you know, now there's been, you know, that movement in, in at least in the way that we've been working with things to try and periodize and try and target different carbohydrate support for different roles in different training sessions and different competition um, performance support. So I think, you know, periodization and individualization is now the, the name of the game, but what's getting a lot of airplay sometimes are those situations where that individualization, personalization is now suggesting that we may need more carbohydrates than um previously in very specific scenarios in very specific athletes and that's getting a lot of airplay so we're hearing all these 120 gram per mm. hour stories coming out of um, professional cycling and and um, some other sports and that's getting a lot of airplay but of course that's not something that even those athletes do every day if you you know work or talk to the people who are guiding those athletes in Tour de France's that might be a strategy for a very special stage and there'll be plenty of other stages in the race where there's a different approach. And so it's just interesting as to what we give publicity to, because it wasn't very many years ago than, you know, when Chris Froome took a photo of his breakfast on the morning of a rest day and it was avocado and and smoked salmon and an egg or something. And suddenly it's low carb, you know, Chris Froome eats low carb. Well, Yes, he did that morning and it might have been quite appropriate for what he was doing, but, you know, we, we we shouldn't be trying to extrapolate what one meal by one person in a very specific situation means in terms of the, the context of the whole sports nutrition landscape. Mm. And do you find in your position a lot of people coming to you and saying, I think I want to go keto. I want to do fasting. I mean, do you do you get people coming to you and saying, I want to do these things? I mean, you've touched briefly on the fact that there's a swing towards carbohydrates now, but there was definitely that that phase that, that I'm sure you got people coming to you saying, right, I believe fasting is the way to go. How, how do I do it? What do you think? Did you, did you get those questions? Yeah, look, the, I mean, there's, there's two things that are happening. Um, one is that I'm not working in the coalface of, of um, sports performance with athletes right now. I, since leaving the AIS, I'm not working with this great big crowd of athletes every day that I'm, um, you know, doing that kind of guiding and getting all the um, questions and trying to strategize. I work with a few athletes, but most of my work now is is – um, in research scenarios, and we have our athletes come in and contribute to the research. But we do design our research around what people are asking us. And, yes, um, probably 2013, 2014, as the keto diet was making its um, revival, we certainly had a lot of our very good athletes saying, is this an option? Because we're hearing everybody talking about it and, you know, there's some theory behind it and some of the some of the um, – even Olympic events that I work with, something like the race walk, which 50K events around a three and a half hour event, that's getting interesting because, you know, that's getting down to the sort of mean intensities that fat might be able to support um, as a fuel source. So, you know, you have to think about things. And I always listen to what people are talking about. If for nothing else than just to 
say to athletes, I'm open-minded and I'm really interested to hear what people are talking about. And maybe we were wrong when we did a decade of fat adaptation and we might have missed something. So um, let's get back and have a look at it. And at the same time, we were interested in the periodization of carbohydrate and whether that's superior to just having a high carbohydrate diet all the time. So um, we built our first supernova study to tackle the keto diet at the same time as something that I had sort of more um, experience with and, and perhaps thought might have um, been more beneficial. We could put them all together. And um, because athletes were asking about it, when we said to them, look, we can fund a research camp, what are the things that you're most interested to do? Um, I love doing research with athletes rather than on athletes because if they're invested in the whole thing and they're helping to design the protocols and design the question and they're trying to help you design what would an outcome be that they would trust? You know, you don't want athletes reading papers and saying, but that doesn't mean anything. You know, like it has nothing to, of relevance to my sport um, or I, I heard from the subjects that were in it that they just said they sort of dialed in the performances that wasn't well controlled or it really didn't push them to perform to the level where they're truly seeing if there's a detectable difference or not. I want my athletes working with us to say we're all in this together and we really want to know because that's really good for us to answer that question. At the same time, because we're all together and pushing each other hard in training and we're all interacting and we're learning from each other, we're going to get a benefit, the training camp benefit out of doing it. But wouldn't it be great if we got not just the training camp effect, but we could actually tick off the answer to some questions that we're interested in. Yeah. So, I mean, basically what you're saying is when people came and asked you about fasting, keto, whatever those diets are, your answer was what you've just given. In other words, it's about individuals periodization it's about when you use carbs when you don't i mean i, I guess my well i sorry I'd, I'd say the answer was let's study it and really understand yeah. it right and what louise is saying is the answer is the outcome of that process but the it's interesting to hear you say that your your reaction to those questions is actually like shit have we missed something here because there was so much momentum behind keto diets low carb diets that would be going to improve performance that it's in, yeah that's when it started to get polarized i'd say it was 10 14 15 years ago and your response to that was, well, we've done a lot of work on fat adaptation, but maybe we've missed something and we need to actually study this thing properly again. Have I got that right? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I find it quite frustrating when I hear or I see Twitter um, discussing my work, oh, I'm so biased and, um, mm. you know, I, I'm just pushing carbs all the time. And I'm thinking, I don't know anyone that's spent so much of their life truly trying to get to the bottom of this. And I'm always prepared to um, change mm -hmm. my mind because at the end of the day, I wanted, I want strategies that help athletes perform. I don't care what form they come in as long as they're safe, effective and legal. Um, it, it would give me greatest pleasure if we could find an, a way that the ketogenic diet worked for a certain sort of sports performance to help an athlete do it and, and get their goals met. So I'm not wed to what's going to make a difference as long as we can, you know, find the evidence that it works and try and optimise the strategy. That's 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 the beauty of, of you know, being a, an applied sports researcher. So it is frustrating, you know, when you hear from 
um, other sources that you, you're um, such a biased person and you, you're the head of the, the carb cult. It's, that's <laughs> not how I'd like to see myself. Because what, one of the interesting aspects of some of these diets, now I've, we've got a local dietitian here in South Africa who I went and saw for a while and, and had many discussions with her about particularly these sort of, I wouldn't say extreme diets, but the, the fad diets. And she would say that the majority of people that came to her to fix their diets and to fix their bodies were people who had been on these keto fasting diets. In other words, they'd messed up their, their body to such an extent that she had to get them back into a proper regime of regular eating, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a danger that experimenting like this can in fact cause metabolic re reasons why you shouldn't do that? Yeah, look, or, I, or... I think there are some problems with that, but I think some of the bigger problems are our, um, the psychology of eating and yeah. social aspects of eating. And I find mm. it really um, upsetting, you know, when I find people that, become so extreme about their diet. I don't care what direction it is. It can be high carb, it can be keto, it can be vegetarian, it can be paleo, whatever it is, that they stop being able to interact with other people around food. The enjoyment aspect of it goes out the window because they're so obsessed with things. And the more that you restrict your food choices, the more likely it is that you're going to be missing out on some nutrient or some um, you know, food constituent that's important for health. And so... Um, you know, people can do damage in that way. And this is something we haven't really got to the bottom of yet. But if you talk to people in the eating disorder world, they will tell you that one of the risk factors for developing an eating disorder is extreme control of your diet. Now, that is often practised in the form of a weight loss um, goal. And that's, you know, where people go down the um, the pathway and, and develop sordid eating and eating disorders. But I'm also wondering if if even if you were trying to control your diet so rigorously with such obsession, but the goal wasn't weight loss, it was, you know, some other aspect, whether that in itself isn't also um, a, a risk factor for disordered eating. So I think, you know, yes, there's lots of things that can be a disadvantage or a, um, an unnecessary outcome of, of such dietary obsession and it's sometimes interesting to say oh yes it's the metabolic aspects but I um, you know one of the reasons that I became a dietitian is because of my interest in the psychology and the behavior and the social aspects of eating and mm. I don't think we should under undervalue just what people can give up when they become so obsessed. And to be fair, the dietitian Mike is talking about was a guest on this podcast and yeah. her whole position as a dietitian is also as a psychologist who is most interested in her clients' relationships with food. And I think would very much agree with you, Louise, about the fact that these diets damage that relationship. They are they are harmful to it. And I have gone out and eaten with people who advocate for these low-carb, high-fat, and they, they can't actually go out. They cannot sit in a restaurant and order a meal like a normal person. It must be a tremendous burden to go through life always obsessive about the macronutrient contents of your food, what you can and can't have and so on, even if it's for what you think is the healthy benefit of improving your performance or your health. I think I think it, I, I agree with Louise on that. So, I mean, Louise, if you had to give us a bit of a broad strokes then, when you're talking and dealing with, I mean, you, you focus very much on elite athletes most of your life, but what what, what do you say to athletes in terms of diet? What's the, what are the broad strokes? Well, it's, 
trying to understand what are the goals of if it's a competition that we're trying to focus on first, let's think about what can enhance or impair performance during that event. And that can be some of the characteristics of the event itself, but sometimes it's the environment, you know, it's whether it's hot or humid or cold or whatever that we have to take into account. And then you work back down to what are the training practices that are needed to achieve optimum competition performance and what can we do with nutrition to try and amplify the training response because we can think about all those different sessions of exercise as being units and you want to get the best out of every unit and then you want to integrate them all together so the total impact is optimised. And so you can see already I'm adding complexity to it. So, you know, I'm. it's very difficult to answer that, that question of what's the best way of doing something in six words because it is so complex and I don't want to apologise for that and I know people want sound bites and the sound bite might be go and see a sports dietitian <laughs> um, because, you know, you, you, you don't go to the doctor and say, um, you know, my, my appendix is hurting, give me six words to fix it. You know, you expect <laughs> that the doctor's got a, a whole um, expertise behind that and there's a, a large number of things that will be part of the strategy that works with you. So um, let's not look for sort of that, that quick fix. Let's let's embrace the fact that this is going to be a wonderful adventure and there's going to be mm. some um, ways in which we construct things for the training phase and then there's going to yeah. be some things that we practice for competition to get ready for it and then there will be the final things that we do on the day. And some of them can be based on things that we know from research, but some of it might have to be adapted because, um, you know, the complexity of things is, is just amazing. I, I had a really interesting um, experience about three months ago, maybe more. Um, there was a phone call at three o'clock in the morning and it was from an athlete who was on the starting line of the 20K um, race walking world championship event at Budapest. And he was standing on the, on the starting line um, and all of a sudden an electrical storm appeared out of nowhere and he rang me and he said, I've taken my Morton's bicarb and I've got I've taken my caffeine and I've got my gels all lined up and they've pushed the race back two hours. What do I do? <laughs> and there's no scientific paper I can find that addresses that exact scenario. So, you know, we're um, I'm actually working on a little project um, around using artificial intelligence and wisdom of the crowd to try and find some solutions for these really nuanced questions. Because if we want an evidence base, we're not going to find the trial or the meta-analyses that can answer some of these questions. But maybe there is information or expertise around that could try and get to the bottom of it in a, in a way that we're not using now, but um, could blend our traditional ways of getting evidence with the practical expertise and the observations we can see and then you know bring it all together mm. so you, you you speak about an adventure and going on this journey let's let's do that but from the perspective of understanding the principles around nutrition and nutrition's too broad so i want to simplify it and talk about like fueling exercise so in this regard, I want to maybe hear from you about the study you did, the race walkers, the principles, and so on. But if we go right back to the start, what, what are we 
what are we as endurance athletes actually trying to do when we manipulate the carbohydrates and the fat content of our diet? Well, on the race day, we wanted to make sure the muscle has got the most efficient fuel and enough of it so it can produce ATP in the right rates to cope with the event and mm. recognising that that may not be steady state for the event. You know, it's it's nice to think that someone might be doing a time trial and pick the perfect intensity and manage that to get to the to the finish line. But in many races, there's a tactical and technical um, aspect that means that there'll be a, a change in intensity over the event. But we need to make sure that that um, athlete has trained their mitochondria to be able to store and or to have enough capacity to provide oxygen to burn the fuels that they've stored and that all the machinery in the muscle is being able to supply those fuels in the right amounts at the right time so that we can just you know keep that furnace going to the intensity that's required to, to win that event or do the PB or whatever it is that we're going to do. And on top of that, so that's the fuel, I'm going to have to you know take into account that the environment might change something about that and that there may be other things that could impair performance in terms of, say, hydration levels or gastrointestinal discomfort. So you might say that fuel might be the, you know, the number one key thing, but there could be other things that go wrong mm. on the day as well and they need to be built into the plan. So then with respect to, to that question around fueling, like how do we maximise the capacity of the body to produce the ATP needed at the right rates to, to win the race or do the best you can in the race? Where, where does fat and carb fit on that? And I know we're going right back to the basics here, but I just want to try and introduce the principle for why people would have first thought, let's cut out the fuel that I know we need during the race and rather train on the fuel that like is less likely to be <laughs> important in the race. And why, why did people go in the low carb, high fat direction in the first instance? Well, there was the feeling that you know, carbs are finite and that we're going to run out of them. So why don't we use something that we've got more of? Because even the leanest of an endurance athlete will still have enough fat reserves stored in the in the muscle, mm. the intramuscular triglyceride, but in the rest of their body is, is adipose tissue. They'll have more than enough fat to fuel that whole marathon without taking in any fuel from any other source. And so it is tempting to say, well, if it's already there, why mess around with the need to take in more during the event? Because even if we store as much glycogen as we can in the muscle, we're still not going to have quite enough to be able to work at that highest of intensity. So, um, you know, we're making a commitment to taking in some extra carbohydrate during most endurance events. And even when we're talking about the marathon, um, you know, we, it's a, it's, we know that we're going to have to do more than just rely on what the body would already have. So you can see that it's tempting to say, well, let's just simplify it and make ourselves really good at burning what we've got. And that's the basis of, of both fat adaptation studies and the ketogenic diet um, mm. principles that, that we've looked at. And it is tempting, and we certainly found that even in elite endurance athletes who are already good at burning fat because that's a byproduct of the training that they do and possibly something about their genetic makeup. But we could double their rate of fat oxidation during exercise by switching to a ketogenic diet. We're getting prodigious amounts. You know, you know, a bigger endurance athlete who can work at really high absolute intensities, we were finding two grams a minute of fat oxidation possible. 
And that's that's pretty just like it's amazing to see to, to mm. think about that happening. But what we hadn't thought about until I remember the first study, the first supernova study, and I'm looking at the data that was coming out of our metabolic carts. And at the AIS, um, we had a bespoke metabolic cart. It's not your parvo or um, um, you know commercial metabolic cart. So um, we were using Douglas bags and first principles, and there's a bit of um, interaction with the data that you can look at. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a bit odd. The um, the oxygen consumption is higher when the athletes are on the high-fat diet. And I remember yeah. having this discussion with Ron Morn, and he looked at me as if I was completely stupid and I just had not thought about every principle of physiology that I'd ever learned, that we know for like 100 years ago they knew um, that you need more fat, more oxygen to burn fat to produce the same amount of ATP just because of the, the stoichiometry of how we put um, fat and carbohydrate through those pathways, mm. particularly the um, the Krebs cycle, the, and produce the reducing equivalence of the ATP, then going into the um, electron transport chain, about 5% more ATP can be produced from a given amount of oxygen when you're burning carbohydrate rather than fat. And so the that means that, and this is what people sometimes misunderstand, we're not saying that you can't burn fat at high intensities. You can, mm. and you can train the muscle to do it. The problem is you'll be producing roughly 5% less ATP to do it, which means that the speed that you can move at is probably going to be 1% or 2% slower. And so why would I do anything, even if I can do it and achieve it, why would I want to give away 1% or 2% of my speed for everything else being equal? And it's ironic that at the time that we're doing this, the super shoes are coming out and they're providing this improvement in economy. They're, this is about how much oxygen it takes to move at the same speed. Mm-hmm. And they're changing economy in a positive direction by about the same amount. And we've seen what's happened in athletics with those super shoes. Every world record has been broken because of a very small change in economy. So why would you be trading off that same amount because of the fuel choice that you're asking your muscle to make? It just doesn't make sense to me. It's, yeah. it's, um, so I'm not saying you can't burn fat. I'm just saying that you will. And it's it's like I, people will say, oh, but somehow magically it doesn't work like that. We've done studies and athletes still can run at the same speed. And I'm saying, yes, but if you go back to the biochemistry, the principle is such that, you will be going slower because you're producing less ATP. So whether or not you can detect it in your lab because of the protocols that you're using and how reliable and precise they are, it might be a question. But mm. you know, at the very bottom of it, there's a biochemical rule that you just can't change. Can I just clarify to both of you, because I'm talking from the layman's perspective and just make sure that I understand this correctly. We, 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 there's two energy systems you're talking about. One is the one is obviously your fat burning, and the other one is your glycogen. In other words, if I want to go faster at a higher intensity, there's no getting away from the fact that glycogen is a more efficient fuel. At low intensity, fat is available to fuel the body. Is that is that well, a is that a yeah? Good you're always using both. You you never mm. really that's uh, it's an idea that people haven't understood properly. It's not like you become 
a, a keto person and you only burn fat, you're yeah. always burning a mixture of both. But Shifting. the degree to which it will mm. change is 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 um, based on those dietary preferences. So, okay, you've learned to burn more fat, but the problem is that you need to get more oxygen to do the same thing. Now, that's not going to be a problem if you do events that are around 60 to 70% or 50 to 55% or whatever you want to say of your VO2 max, because if you used to be able to do it at 65 and now you have to move up to 69% to do the same thing, that's all right because you've still got plenty of reserve to make that change. But if you're an Olympic marathon runner and you're running at 85 to 88% of your VO2 max, you ain't got any wriggle room there. Yeah, so so even more than that, I'd say let's if you simplify it to an individual, Mike, on a day, no dietary intervention, you haven't tinkered with keto, low fat, low carb, nothing. As you increase your intensity, because this is sort of what you were hinting at, is the reliance on carbohydrates goes up because the fat is just not able to meet the demand as effectively as carbs for a number of reasons. One is metabolic, but there's also an issue around fuel availability. And I, I don't know where we are on that. Remember the remain studies of the 1990s where there's an intensity above which you actually don't see the fat appearing anymore to the system because fat requires transport to get out of the uh, the adipose tissue and to the muscle and that process. So not only are you less likely to use it well, you're just less likely to see it at the muscle. Does that make sense? It's availability and use. So fat is like diesel in a way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know enough about cars yeah. to answer that. Well, you wouldn't have but, a high revving, revving diesel engine, so to speak, but you right. go for a long time. Yeah, and so so at, as the exercise intensity demand increases, fat becomes less suitable to power the demand. The supply just fails to meet the demand and carbohydrates are necessary. Now, when you superimpose diet onto that, and this is what I wanted to ask you as well, Louise, is a, a period of low-carb, high-fat nutrition, feeding, changes our body's metabolic makeup in a way. You actually see an increase in the enzymes that help us oxidize fat and a decrease in the enzymes that help us burn carbohydrates. How much can we play with that, Louise? Like what's the what's the change in fat oxidation in someone who is keto adapted? Well we we can double it. We could you know we can go from the the you know they may get to a maximum of 0.8 to 1 gram um, per minute in in a well-trained athlete. But as I said, we've, we've had up to mm. you know, 1.8 to 2 grams per minute of fat oxidation, which is just, it's it's a phenomenal amount. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive there. range. Yeah. And look, it's yeah. it's it's uh, probably a whole lot of things. You've, you've talked about um, the enzymes that help with the entry into TCA cycles. You've talked about transport. But you know, there's probably also changes in the muscle in terms of storage. So some of that fat's now going to be intramuscular triglyceride that's within the muscle so that it doesn't have to get broken down in the adipose tissue and, and mm. um, sent to the to the muscle. And possibly, and this is something we'd like to look at, the where the fat droplets are, they probably change their location so they're more likely to be close to where you need them. So there's a lot of these um, adaptations that can occur that we probably just suspect, but it'd be lovely to go back and, and be able to prove and quantify. But at the end of the day, I mean, and that's why we sort of started to say, this is really fascinating, but for the group of athletes that we're working with, it's not going to be an advantage because they really do need to be able to work at these very high intensities for, for sustained periods. And so I'm more than willing to say there's other events where that capability 
might be um, the key thing. And so, you know, athletes can knock themselves out in those sports and those events to, to follow keto diets. But, you know, when you know your own sport and you're trying to work with the athletes that have different requirements, at that point you can say, this is all fascinating and I'd love to get to the bottom of all the physiology and metabolism behind it, but it's probably not within my wheelhouse now. So at, at these higher intensities, then, if you talk about doubling of fat oxidation, I assume that's in the, for want of a better word, that that intensity sweet spot where we know that fat oxidation is the highest, somewhere between 50 and 65%, I suppose, of VO2 max. Yeah, Does it? We've um, tried to have a look at that because we haven't seen so much of a switch of where the fat max is. Like it's still it's still probably in the 60, 65%. They're still yeah. able to burn it at higher rates um, after that. So at, you know, 75 and 80%, there's still some fat being contributed, particularly in the keto-adapted phase. But it does, for the reasons that you've said, start um, moving down. It's just what we've seen with the keto adaptation is, everything shifts up rather than shifts a lot to the right. Right. Um, That's what I was going to ask, is that at the intensity you mentioned, marathon runners in the low 80s to mid 80% of max, you'd still see higher fat oxidation after a keto adapt adaptation period in those athletes. But the, the point you're making, and I'm paraphrasing, so please correct or add, is that because at those intensities, the carbohydrates are really essential to keep the rate of energy supply going, your change in metabolic fuel use doesn't get reflected in performance because the the trade-off you're making is you now need more oxygen to burn the energy at the rate you need it. Yes. Yeah. And then when we've also tried to get the best of both worlds by having those keto-adapted athletes have carbohydrate, either by yeah. storing glycogen the night before or having carbohydrate during the session, we don't find that it can make up for the limitation of um, the fat burning because it, we suspect that there is that down regulation of the enzymes that help carbohydrate to be oxidized. Mm -hmm. But I also think that in during exercise, if you're trying to consume carbohydrates, so from exogenous sources, then there's probably a gastrointestinal um, limit to how much you can consume as well. So, right. you know, your, your body's learning to burn fat, but it's not, it's not keeping what it used to be able to do with carbohydrate. It's at the expense of the carbohydrate right. story. So, yeah, it's, an, it's not additive. In other words, it's a substitute, substitutive, if that's a word, um, yeah. process. And so the, the very adaptations that make you better at fat compromise carbs. And then in the race situation, you can't use the carbs the way you should maybe. And that punches a hole in the live, the train low, compete high narrative. You know that theory. It's the, yeah. So we know in altitude, we talk low about train high, compete, compete low. But, the race, yeah. yeah, so training on low carbs, competing high, that doesn't necessarily work because you don't gain back what you lost. So you, you may gain a little though, because there's, there's a really yeah. interesting case study in the literature that comes from Tim Noakes' group. And there's an ultra-endurance triathlete who had read some of um, perhaps our studies and read that he may be compromising that high end with um, being a keto-adapted athlete. And so he um, experimented with taking in some carbohydrate during high-quality training sessions and then after a couple of weeks trial that in different performance rides. And he found exactly what we predict, that in the 
performance bands where he was sort of doing work from sort of, um, you know, four minutes up to 80 minutes perhaps, then taking in some carbohydrate during that event improved his performance over what he was doing with just the straight keto diet. Mm. But when he was doing very brief or very prolonged lower intensities, then that carbohydrate didn't seem to make a difference. Now, that doesn't mean that the keto type was the best way of going because we don't have the control condition where he would have been training on carbohydrates, not keto adapted, and then having carbohydrates during those performance sessions. But it does show that a little bit of carbohydrate, and maybe it's just that mouth rinsing effect, it's maybe there was not a great metabolic contribution to exercise that having the carbohydrate during the exercise was um, achieving, but maybe just that brain stimulation. We know that when you put carbohydrate in your mouth, your brain says, oh, this is going to be good. Um, you don't even have to swallow it to get that effect. And so some of the yeah. effects seen in that that case study might be just you know due to the, um, the brain effect. But there was... Look, when they looked at some of the um, sessions and looked at the fuel utilisation in those sessions, there did seem to be a small increase in the carbohydrate contribution, but not back to what we'd expect in an athlete who is um, fully carbohydrate primed. Mm. So, so two questions. I, 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 just just to clarify what, you was, what you're just saying, I remember one of my first sort of gurus when it came to fat adaption and training and that kind of thing was Phil Maffetone, who wrote a book on heart rate monitors many, many years ago. And now Ross has heard me speak about him often. And he used to say that you have two energy systems. You've got anaerobic and you've got aerobic. And once you go anaerobic, you're no longer aerobic. You've now suggested that it is a process of using fats. And then as you get high intensity, you start to get close to glycogen and sugars. Is there a point where you are not using sugars at all, only fats? Or is it always a combination of both to some degree? Well, this is this is sort of an interesting thing because the way we measure this is by looking at what's happening in the breath and we're looking at carbohydrate and fat oxidation estimated over the whole body. And, you know, we, we look at the, the respiratory gases and we can do our assessments of how much energy was being consumed and where it was coming from based on a, a an average of the whole body. But remember, we're made up of different muscles and those muscles have got different fibres and they're all different cells. And so it's all easy to say, oh, when you're above this percentage of VO2 max, it's all anaerobic. But it's it's never all one of another. There's a whole there's, there's a whole lot of muscles doing stuff and there's a whole lot of you know, different fibres within those muscles and they're all doing what they can. And so I think it would be you know, it's a disservice to people to think that it's a pure switch that says, right, we've stopped doing this and now we're doing that. Mm. You may find that the trend is moving more to this. Um, and, you know, even within the muscle cell, there's there's all these different mitochondria doing different things. So it's um, far more complex than we think. But, you know, generally, as we get into these much higher exercise intensities, then the degree to which energy is being produced anaerobically, um, you know, becomes more important than it was before. 
Yeah. And can, and can it change in one exercise session, for instance? If you go out, I know a couple of people that I've trained with, where they say, right, you're, to, you're right today, the coach says, is zone two. So they go and they look at their average heart rate at the end of that training session. They go, oh, I was in zone two. But actually what they've forgotten is halfway through, they've done a couple of accelerations where they've gone into zone four and five. Does the body come down into a lower zone of that carbohydrate and fat a percentage or does it kind of stay up in that high percentage once you go into that zone what what do we yeah, know it's about change that? all the time but even at the Is same it? zone different parts of your body are going to be doing different things you know it's mm. we're sort of an orchestra made up a whole lot of different instruments and you're hearing the noise that comes out at the end but yeah. every instrument's doing a bit differently and even as, as the duration of the session goes, there's going to be changes because as you start depleting some of the fuels in some of the muscle fibres, then they're going to then um, have to move to a different fuel set or they're going to recruit other muscle fibres that haven't had depletion yet. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, we, we've made up of a, a whole army of little things going on inside us and it's it's a very well-orchestrated army. It's just when you when you get down to the weeds, isn't it amazing, Ross? Like the more you know, the more fascinating it really is about just how amazing we are as human beings to mm. be able to exercise and have performance at all. And then you have to put the brain into it. Like it, yeah. The, yeah. the whole thing is just fascinating. And that's why I've learned to have a deeper mistrust of anyone in physiology who says it's simple. We know that because I've learned mm. – and in fact, it's become like my litmus test for people in social media as to whether I trust them or call them out as a bullshitter. Is if they mm -hmm. if they're confident in what they know, then I'm pretty confident I know they don't know. <laughs> if that makes sense, I may have lost people there. But mm -hmm. but just coming back to this, one thing to clarify, Mike, is that anaerobic aerobic for all the faults with that binary thinking are not necessarily synonymous with carbs and fat. Like carbs, carbs can be aerobic too. Ah, I thought there was that was in the No, 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 it's not they're not synonyms for one another. So when we when we exercise let's call it oxygen dependent aerobic, we are still able to burn carbohydrates at quite a high rate. And so yeah, it's not it's not a, as that's, yeah. That's a great point, Ross. And that's that's probably where we're saying the big difference is it's when carbohydrates are burned aerobically, mm. that's where you get the right. most ATP. If like if you're a smart person, you don't want to be doing too much anaerobically because once you're doing that, you're producing byproducts that that have limitations on metabolism. But also the amount of ATP you get from carbohydrate when you're um, using it anaerobically without oxygen, you get a much lower yield. Mm. The, the big ticket item, the best way to burn carbohydrate is aerobically at the highest intensity you can. Yeah, so let's say we watch the Tour de France and we're watching Vinegar, Roglic, Evenepoel and Pogacar going up a climb that's 45 minutes long. For most of that climb, aside from the moments that they attack one another, they are still below that so-called anaerobic oxygen-independent threshold. But their carb oxidation rates are enormous. Like we're talking 20 calories a minute and easily 50, 60, 70% of that will come from carbs. And so that's, I mean, and please give me the correct values so I don't make fool myself, but no, you're looking no, at... Four Absolutely four agree. grams a minute of carbohydrates, and you're still aerobic, and that's that would be a like a tempo pace. Yeah, that's sort of critical power just below that. So this is a steady state almost for those guys, and they'll be burning massive volumes of carbohydrate. The problem now is that they can't 
they can't because they can't do it through fat. Mm. Even if they're adapted, two grams. And it'd be interesting to know Louisa's thoughts. Like if you find that person is two grams a minute of fat, that's 18 calories. In theory, that can power very high intensity exercise. But in reality, I suppose for the efficiency or economy reasons, it just doesn't. Well, you'd say to yourself, you can power incredible exercise by being able to do that. But the same amount of oxygen delivered to your muscle to do that yeah. would get a better effect if it was going through carbohydrates. Right. So what 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 do you want? You know, like you, so you've lowered you your ceiling. Yeah. Person, don't we? Yeah. yeah. And when you say you need more oxygen, it... in other words, when you're going at high intensity, obviously you're pulling more oxygen into your lungs, therefore you're providing more oxygen for the process. Yeah, and 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 you know, using the carbon shoe, which we love on this podcast, <laughs> as a as a counterpoint, I like it because Everyone understands that if you've got a if you've got an, a device, a shoe that can make you more economical, improve your economy, it means your ceiling's higher. You can go there a little bit faster before you run up or bump up against the metabolic limits. Now, now ask what happens in reverse. A device that reduces or impairs economy, ceiling's lower. I can no longer go at the same intensities before I bump up against that. And that's what the, the research is finding happens with. Uh, chronic low carbohydrate intake that causes this ketogenic state. I, th I think that's right. Again, mm. the author's on the line. Let me not talk over. Yeah. What, so, Louise, yeah. like what? Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, like, it's, it, it, isn't it lovely that we've got this analogy with carbon shoes at the same yeah. time so that we can try and explain it to people in a way that, that they are happy to comprehend? And as I said, you can say to myself, oh, that can't make that much difference. But I'm saying black and white, you look at what happens with world records. There's, there's, there's not one that's, you know, still there from pre-carbon shoes. Yeah. Louise, when you did those studies in the walkers and, and I guess other studies also, not just those from your group, how long was the period of keto adaptation or low-carb adaptation? And what do you say in response to the inevitable accusation or claim that you just didn't give the athlete long enough to adapt. Had you given them twice as long, three times as long, you'd see something quite different. Look, we, we went with three weeks for the first time because we were working from the Finney Bible, the book that said that in two to three weeks, you will maximally adapt and improve your performance. So we went for three weeks because we were trying to find something that worked the three-week cycle is a, a good training phase for the athletes. Um, and it was, you know, for these, we, you know, we're working with Olympic athletes, world champions who were in preparation for the Rio Olympic Games. And so we needed to do something that was within their training phases. And they were happy to be with us for five weeks. They came in and did performance testing first. They did a full training phase of the three weeks. And then we did um, the post-testing. And so... For us, we thought we were giving it the best shot possible because we were going as long as we'd been told, even a bit longer, that would achieve these maximal effects. Um, and then, of course, you know, as soon as we publish, it's, well, you didn't go long enough. Mm. Um, we went back and actually did a, then a, a shorter event. We did six days and we found that same in change at the muscle level. We didn't measure it in terms of taking biopsies to, um, to verify those changes, but in terms of the changes in substrate use we got our 1.8 grams of fat oxidation per minute from six days of the keto adaptation and that was in line with all the work we'd done a decade previously with the fat adaptation of a non-ketogenic but high fat carbohydrate restricted diet where we had taken muscle biopsies 
and seen all these changes at the at the um, molecular level. So my thought is that it depends what you think's adapting. If it's about the muscle and the fuel utilization, then three weeks is is plenty long enough. If there are other things you need to adapt to, the fatigue or the the changes in um, you know just how your well being goes and your training quality, certainly you know there's maybe reasons to go longer than the three weeks. But at the end of the day, if it's all based on the fuel utilization, you could go 200 millennia and you're not going to change the Krebs cycle. Mm. So, and you're not going to change the electron transport chain. So, it kind of it's self defeating to say that we didn't go long enough. There may be other things that happen with the ketogenic diet, and there may be other reasons for people to want to be on it. But if the reason that you wanted to be on it was to be able to burn more fat during exercise, well, then it happens more quickly than you think, and it's not the solution you thought for mm. some events. Right. I, I loved a, a comment that we a couple of years ago we did an interview with uh, Professor Graham Close from the Liverpool's John Moores University. We talked to very much on the subject, and he comes comes up with this great line around fuel for the work required. And um, just moving on slightly from our discussion now, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is is that is that a, is that a good principle to think about when you talk about? sports nutrition and particularly around endurance exercise yeah look i think that's a it's a great principle and it's not just fuel for the work required it should be nutrition for the work required because you could think about other things being important as well you know whether it's fluid or whether it's micronutrient support but in terms of the fuel i mean that's why i'm so interested in um, periodized carbohydrate availability because it says Athletes need to track what they're eating with the sessions that they're doing and the goals of that session. And some athletes, you know, really need to have high-quality sessions driving their training adaptation and they need to fuel those well. If you're just, um, you know, going out and doing some gentle running or it's all just sort of moderate intensity, it possibly doesn't matter what you eat as much because you're not really pushing yourself to the limits of that training session. Um, and many of the recovery sessions that athletes do, you can eat carbs or not eat carbs. It's not going to change probably the outcome of, of that session. Whether or not there's an advantage in actually deliberately withdrawing from carbohydrates so that that session is done under different metabolic conditions and it drives greater adaptation, that's one of the you know key questions that people are still asking. And I don't think there's a simple solution there either because I think the studies that have been done show that for um, lesser calibre athletes who don't do the same volume of training, that may work for them because it does change glycogen levels in the muscle and there may be some advantages to having some training sessions where you've got low glycogen. But for the elite athlete, it's possible that the way that our training knowledge has preceded our interest in nutrition means that coaches and athletes have worked out that the best way of getting these performance changes is to train at these highest volumes and highest intensities that are manageable and they construct their training week in such a way that there's some quality sessions spread around and then there's some lower lower intensity sessions between them and they end up having the volume and intensity of their training creating these sessions with low glycogen that the diet doesn't interfere with. The diet doesn't change. And mm. I, 
and I've got an example from our studies. So we had in our supernova studies some of the 50K walkers who would do in the morning a 40K session and then in the afternoon they do a 10K session. And we had them split into groups where some were getting high-carbohydrate meals for all of those sessions and some were deliberately having a low-carbohydrate meal between those two sessions because we thought that was creating a train-low session in the afternoon. But the reality is if you've done 40K in the morning, you will be training low that afternoon because there's just not enough time to restore the glycogen. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you eat. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why you know, high volume, high intensity training programs have become the norm for elite athletes because they learned through trial and error how to create scenarios in which there were some sessions done with low glycogen. And they found out that that helped the overall adaptation. They didn't know why, but recreational sort of lower level athletes like me, I can't train that hard to do that. So if I want to get that same effect, I might have to modify my diet to create that low glycogen session. And in fact, that now, the, the last two minutes, is so relevant to what we heard in our interview with Gorka just before this, where in an elite group of cyclists, you, you don't really see those metabolic shifts from five weeks of periodized low carb because they are so well-trained and probably doing so much of their training in a glycogen-depleted state, even when on a high-carb diet. And so it's perhaps in that context not that surprising that he wouldn't find it there. Whereas for you know regulars like us, you, you might well find something like that. Just while on the subject of training, Louise, I wanted to just ask you your thoughts on, for instance, the, in Jürgendrup's group, there's a, a Dr. Yul Achten published that paper where they put a group of runners through seven days of quite vigorous high intensity training. Some of them got low carbohydrate or normal rather, like 5.4, I think it was grams per kilogram per day and others at high, and even within the course of two weeks, um, they find mood state disturbances are greater when you have lower carb intake. They find indications of overtraining measured as performance declines are greater when you have normal carb, and therefore that high carb intake in training defends against mood disturbances, defends against overtraining. What And I think, yeah, I think that's really true, and I think perhaps the difference between some of the train low literature and early and now is that in in the early research, it was black and white. So we had the group that was training with high carb and then the like the Arcton study, there's the group that's got the moderate or the low and yeah. every day is that exposure. Whereas when we try now to do train low type studies, we're doing periodized. So mm -hmm. we look at the week and we say the athlete still needs to have high quality workouts and needs to be able to recover on this day, this day, this day. And here are two days or three days in the week where we'll slip in a low carbohydrate session and it's integrated into the big thing. So we're not hitting something with a sledgehammer. We're integrating something in, in a, a smart way. And so Certainly, I think that, you know, the old literature and something like the Arcton study shows, yes, there is a disadvantage to being low carbohydrate continually, and that probably negates some of those um, early studies which saw that there were improvements in the metabolic qualities of the muscle with the train low, but because they'd done it all the time, 
they mm. hadn't taken into account that things like training quality and recovery and mood and all those things that carbohydrate might help with were taken away. So there was an advantage at one level of the muscle, but all the other things that go on to make performance were disturbed in those protocols. So yeah. if you're wanting to look at something, I know the principle sometimes is if you really want to see something, amplify the effect so that yeah. it's black and white. But I think this is a good example of saying, no, carbohydrates doing much more than just being a fuel for the muscle here. So what we've got to do if we're going to have um, an intervention is put it in just when it makes a, a difference and create the safety of all the other good uses of carbohydrate left intact so that you end up, you know, with an intervention that's likely to get the effect and not have it disturbed by something else you didn't want to happen. Plus there's the, I suppose, the the bluntness. Is my mic still on? Yeah. The, the bluntness of just, I mean, a three grams per kilogram per day difference in carbohydrates probably has quite profound implications for the total energy intake in a day, unless you correct it through other nutrient sources. And I don't know for sure whether they did or didn't do that, but I'd imagine the total daily caloric intake starts to play interact with the carbohydrates and the macronutrients in order That's to determine really this. That's really important um, thought. And it's not just the direction you're thinking of it, it's the other direction as well. Right. In the, when we see some of these deleterious effects of low energy availability, it can be that some of them are being produced by low carbohydrate availability, not just the energy deficit. Um, because one of the things our keto studies have given us an opportunity to do is to look at what happens when you've got carbohydrate restriction without low energy availability. And some of our more recent supernova studies, we had three arms. We had the high carb, high energy. We had the keto, which was high energy, low carb. And then we had a low energy availability, which was low energy. And we tried to make carbs as much of that energy as possible and we saw often that some of the perturbations in some of our body systems around iron metabolism, around immune system, around bone metabolism, they were more affected by the low carbohydrate, high energy than they were by the low energy, moderate carbohydrate. So that that's a bit of a warning yeah, for us in terms of thinking of um, some of the bigger issues around ketogenic diets. So the implication is some people might say, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut the carbs, but I value the calories and I'm going to increase those by means of fat and protein intake to try at least in part or completely make up for that reduction in carbs. And what you're saying is that you will still see some of those negative effects of being on a carb-restricted, like high-fat ketogenic diet, even if you try your best to match the calories. And so you might be you might be overvaluing macronutrients, uh, sorry, calories and undervaluing macronutrients. Yeah, and look, this is something that we've only seen in acute scenarios. So some of our studies have done things like had the athletes do a bout of exercise, like a two-hour bout of strenuous exercise, and then we've followed things like what happens with um, the immune response, the inflammatory response, the bone metabolism turnover, mm. iron metabolism, and all those have been impaired compared to the high carbohydrate approach. And so it's a, look, it's a really complicated story because when people talk to me about keto diets, they say, oh, they're so wonderful because they're anti-inflammatory. They reduce the inflammatory response of life. 
And I can read papers in which people have been on ketogenic diets and lost weight and improved the inflammatory response. But that's, I think, driven a lot by the weight loss. When you're in athletes who have, you know, good metabolic profiles and you've got the stress of exercise with low glycogen, that produces an inflammatory response. And so we see a a different effect that the ketogenic diet's actually increasing the markers of inflammatory responses to an exercise session under those scenarios. And so it's sort of like the opposite to when ketogenic diets are used for weight loss in people who have poor metabolic control. So because it just keeps coming back to the world is so complicated and we need to have context and nuance always considered when you're saying things. Yeah. Uh, just moving on, uh, there's a couple of questions that I want to get through as many of them as I can, but I'm always interested to know for you as a person who specializes in this area, do you sometimes look at research into how people who are traditionally high up in the, in the, in the, in a particular sport and how they eat? In other words, for example, Kenyan runners, what do we know about their diet and what do we know about whether it actually is part of the reason why they are so good at running? I mean, do you do research into different, and we know about, for instance, in, in around the world, you have these blue zones where people live to a long age, but I'm always fascinated to know whether dietitians look at different areas where you have sort of nutritional or sort of sporting greats and understand how diet plays a role in that, in that, in that performance. And look, it's a it's a double edged sword, isn't it? Because you can look at that and you can say um, there's really pretty strong evidence that the Kenyan Ethiopian approach to um, supporting diet in training, at least, perhaps not so much in competition until they come into the sort of the contact with the Western world and all our Morton supplements and our um, gels and whatever. But at least with the training support, it does seem to be driven by a higher carbohydrate diet, good protein sources, but doing some sessions with low carbohydrate available. A lot of the sessions in the morning are, are done in a fasted condition. So it does deal with this concept of the high carbohydrate but periodized approach to carbohydrate support around training. And so it's easy to look at that and say, oh, I'm from the carb team, so I'm going to claim that it's a win for me. But, you know, there's equally other people looking at, you know, what the Inuit or other um, tribes that have come from a, a different background of eating and they're good at something. And so we can say, oh, that, that supports my bias. So I've got a group. And then when it comes down to individuals, as I said, you know, we've got the Christopher room breakfast that suddenly becomes the poster child for, you know, it, it's so, look, I think the observation is really interesting and it might help us to um, then think of some questions that we want to interrogate without the bias. But um, the, this this reliance on anecdata is a is a absolute um, anathema to you know my sense of the world because we can all find something that fits what we want to believe in because there will always be somebody who does something and they can be good despite what they're doing as well as because of what they're doing and yeah. you know when when people tell me about you know, some magic thing that's happened because someone did something. It's interesting, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. And I don't go around telling people what I do, um, you know, as, as proof of, well, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm a fabulous athlete, so I must be doing everything right. 
because I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love that term anecdota. It's a, <laughs> that's a great way to describe science, I think, to some extent. Okay, oh, well, I mean, non, that, non-science. Well, not non-science. Yes, I mean, yeah, non nonsense in many instances. Nonsense. I, I often think because we look at training, like for instance, if you look at Kenyans and you look at, I mean, you mentioned people like the Inuit. I mean, obviously, you would think that they would have, for instance, a high fat diet because mm. they live in, you know, in, in different areas of the world, whereas Kenyans are carbohydrate focused purely because of what they, where they live. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to understand that you you, you can look at those things with an open yeah. mind, you know. Yeah, Louise, what what will your research direction be next? I mean, and and for instance. Continuous glucose monitors have enabled us to measure things maybe that uh, five, ten years ago wouldn't have been possible. Does stuff like that give you opportunities to research or are you looking at taking your your interest in this in a different direction? I'm certainly interested in that. Um, I've got probably three, four main areas that I've – I mean, there's always so much to do and not enough time. But um, I've had the most wonderful opportunity at Australian Catholic University where I'm now – to have access to a metabolic chamber. So the the university has invested in this wonderful toy for us. It's just been finished um, and we're going through the process of getting ethics for our first study. So that's going to give us a huge tool to be able to increase the work we do. And it's been built, um, unlike other metabolic chambers, it's actually got a window that faces out and it looks really terrific, but we can do circadian and, and think of, you know, the sleep aspects of of um, performance as well because um you know we've got natural light being able to be involved with the work we do so um that's a tool that we're going to have and we're going to be using it for all sorts of different reasons not just athlete work but across the whole span of community health and um functional longevity and whatever um i'm trying to make up for my past sins in doing so few of my studies in female athletes because I realised mm. that we have underrepresented an important part of our population in a lot of the work we've done, and that's a bit of irony that I'm female and I've done that. So I need to make up for that, otherwise I'm not going to go to heaven. <laughs> um, <laughs> but a lot of this we're going to look at the low energy availability issues because that's a, a really interesting area of both health and sports performance. Um, you know, what happens when we're not consuming our calorie requirements, particularly when there's a mismatch between the exercise we're doing and the food we're eating. And not saying it's all bad. In fact, it's not because, you know, how many percent of the world needs to be in a bit of low energy availability to improve the obesity problems that we've got. But how can we do it in such a way that we maximise the body composition changes for people who've got health problems, but how can we do it in in a safe way also for athletes who either need to intensify their training or to change body composition so the effects of low energy availability that may be problematic can be reduced? Um, So that's um, an area. And then, of course, I'm always interested in in the supplement story. There's just fascinating little things out there that – pop in as a as an idea and as I said I'm trying to use this new concept of um, AI and wisdom of crowd generated information to to, um, add to the body of knowledge to help get into the weeds with those yeah I mean I I was just one of my questions to you actually was around supplements I mean what are your what are your thoughts on supplements um, as a as a I always talk about them as being the sprinkles on the icing on the cake and 
you know, it's um, it's stupid to be thinking that if you're not eating well and periodizing and, you know, supporting the training and the competition that you're doing well, that suddenly just buying a packet of sprinkles is going to be everything that you need. But if you do have the opportunity, and I have for many years in my life, of working with athletes who have made their cake and iced it and they're in the Olympic final, then, you know, that packet of sprinkles can just be that final thing that makes it all happen on the day. Mm. Yeah. Very few of them, very few of them have got a good um, evidence that they work, but I'm even with the small number of ones that we know can be effective, all the permutations and combinations of how you use them and when you use them and how you might use them interactively. There's still so many questions there to answer that um, I don't care if we haven't got another 100 yet. The ones that we know about now have still got unanswered questions. Hmm. So a final question for me, and uh, just maybe this kind of wraps up a little bit. What do you think are the biggest mistakes that sports people I guess, I mean, I know your area's speciality is in the elites phase, but what do you think is the biggest mistake that people who are active make when it comes to diet and nutrition? Ooh. It's a, it's a broad question, I know. Yeah, I'm going to be facetious and I'm going to say they don't eat enough chocolate. And by that, <laughs> by, that I mean, by that I mean that they don't include that um, important aspect of food, the relationship, the way that it makes us feel happy, the way that it allows us to enjoy social occasions with other people, that they think that um, the way that they need to eat for health or performance is to be, you know, to deny themselves other things. So um, it's well known that, you know, my favourite food, and I would argue it should be one of the food groups, is <laughs> chocolate. And I always try and find a way that I can incorporate it. That's why I run because I need to be able to um, make room <laughs> for a few more calories in my day. Um, so that's the first thing. And I think perhaps the second thing is just oversimplifying. So it's not in any particular direction because it changes. As you said, the pendulum swings. So wherever the pendulum swinging, people are oversimplifying things. And I know the big thing is about fats and carbohydrates at the moment, but I can think of almost every angle of sports nutrition when we first could measure ferritin, then suddenly every athlete had iron deficiency and we were racing around doing all these things around iron. When we first could measure vitamin D in a more um, universal way, suddenly every athlete's got vitamin D deficiency and we're running around. So everything can be oversimplified to the point where the real benefit that it has is lost in just the oversimplification and um, I think, you know, trying to look for a more nuanced way and an integrated way of seeing everything put together is, and I know it's complex and I'm sorry that I'm happy to ask people to, um, you know, think deeply about stuff, but it's, it's, um, it'll pay off. Mm. I think it's, I mean, I, I know from my experience with the, uh, the dietitian we talked to uh, about just a few moments ago, that is exactly what she was often saying, that relationship between food whether it's at the top level of sport or whether it's people like you and I, it's such an important thing that people forget. It's not because we, we, we like to have our treats, we like to have our chocolates, and, you, and at the end of the day, there's a social element. I always feel sorry for the guys who, who stick to these fasting diets where they don't eat at night. I think, well, how do you go out and have a meal with your wife? <laughs> you don't. You don't. You don't. You make a choice. 
<laughs> and, and yeah, and then you tell everyone about it because you, I don't know, eventually you become evangelical. I um just just related to that. It's one of the reasons. Like, and I'm not a dietitian. I'm not involved in sports nutrition, so it doesn't affect me as directly as it does you. But I think it's one of the reasons why the advice you get from the extremists is actually so harmful. And they don't realize that because they don't have to deal with the consequences of their advice six months, 12 months, 18 months down the line, right? I can go on Twitter and tell people, look what worked for me and it works. And I'm a, <laughs> I'm the most quoted sports scientist in history. And that's, mm -hmm. that's why you should listen to me. But 12, 18 months down the line, like you don't have to pick up the consequences of that. And the advice is not benign. That's why it's so harmful. And I hope that the listeners will take from this that they need to actually call it out because it's actually like affecting people on quite a like psychological level. And it's not just, oh, you know, you might just tinker for a few weeks here and then if it doesn't work, you go back because it's it's worse than that. Yeah. Um, so so then then with that in mind, in six words or fewer, and I'm joking. <laughs> uh if if we're asking people to embrace the complexity and not oversimplify. And it's a difficult question maybe, but what advice would you then give to someone who is by no means an elite athlete, but who is interested in improving performance and health by changing things about nutrition is, what should their thinking be about what to do next? Invest in expertise because we, we accept that as being the best way of attacking every other aspect of, or many other aspects of our life. So expect that there's expertise around eating and it's about you know, knowing what food choices are, but being able to put that package that into the lifestyle so that it can be achieved with the expense and the logistics and the social structure around the way that we live. And there's an enjoyment factor as well. So, you know, we've got principles that we turn into practice as well as the as the enjoyment and the culture. So mm. it is it is a lot to um, to learn, but, you know, you've got the rest of your life to learn it. So baby steps and it'll all come together. Perfect. Louise Burke, thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. You have been listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, and join the conversation on our exclusive Science of Sport Patreon page. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.